um, there is an interest for for regulating neurotechnology. So obviously, mm -hmm. the uh, BWC started on more traditional uh, bioweapons risks, uh, but mm -hmm. there is now, um, I think, a general movement not only at the Biological Weapons Convention, but also at the WHO or the Geneva Science and Diplomacy Anticipator, uh, people are interested in trying to assess the risks that are related to neurotechnologies. Um, there's also an initiative uh, called the Neuro Rights Foundation that is coming from the, from the neuroscience community, really. Um, and, and they have this motto, new human rights for the age of neurotechnology. Okay. So there is this desire to... Um, investigate the risks related to neurotechnologies but also yeah. maybe regulate these risks and of course there's a there's a danger of potentially weaponization um, of these yeah. technologies um but also i think in the specific case of neural technologies there's this idea of uh, whether you have a right uh, to privacy of your of your own thoughts and and if in the future it becomes possible to really uh, read your your private thoughts from uh, using a brain implant that you would wear, for instance. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C level executives, leaders of institutions, and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus? on a piece of paper. Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is a multiple board member, a scientific writer and editor, and a professor of neural engineering and computation. This is going to be a conversation about brain capacity, brain computer interface, neuromodulation, and many more related topics. So a fascinating conversation awaits my listeners today on Heads Talk, and who better to deliver this than today's guest, whose expert skill set, as described by his peers, include neurophysiology, computational neuroscience, confocal microscopy, electrophysiology, and biochemistry. But before we get into that, here is a brief message. U.S. Private Capital Forum Go Real 2023 launched now until the end of March, with on-demand sessions offering attendees the utmost flexibility to access industry-specific content and deals on their terms. It will bring together over 100 speakers from across Europe over a broad agenda covering private equity, venture capital, real estate, and private debt. For details, visit www.eurosforum.org. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Professor Renaud Jolivet is the professor at the Maastricht Center for Systems Biology and the chair of neural engineering and computation at Maastricht University. He's a nominated representative for individual researchers and innovators at the European Commission's ERA Forum, as well as being elected member of the board of directors at the Organization for Computational Neuroscience. Professor Jolivet is a member of the Science and Technology Committee of eBrains, the European Research Infrastructure for Neurosciences, and will be a 2023 Fellow for the Foresight Institute for Neurotechnologies. He has previously served on the board of the Initiative for Science in Europe and Marie Curie Alumni Association, 
With a vast geographic experience, he has worked in Japan, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and the UK. His work focuses on brain's heterocellularity and on newer technologies to interface with brain tissue. Professor Jolivers' um, academic qualifications include, but not limited to, masters in biophysics at the University of Lausanne and a PhD in computational neuroscience at EPFL in Switzerland. Let's begin. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Professor Jolivet, aka Renault, to this new series on Heads Talk. Happy to have you here today. Hello. Happy Hello. to be here. Great. Right. Um, I Shall we make a start? Um, I've not asked this question on Heads Talk before, uh, believe it or not, but I'm, I'm curious to know about your career career to date, I should say. Um, forgive me, but you seem quite young. So uh, what's the sequence of events that's led you to become a professor of neural engineering and computation? Oh, I'm probably older than I look. Um, <laughs> so I, I, was, uh, I was always a nerd. And I think uh, um, from an early age, uh, I knew that I wanted to become a scientist. So I was a avid consumer of comic books and science fiction. Um, and, and I was really uh, uh, attracted by the, the academic life as accurately portrayed in the Indiana Jones movies. So I, I decided uh, to become a scientist. And um, uh, by the time I, I was about to enter university, uh, I had read some popular science books, in particular, A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I really wanted to study physics and study cosmology. Uh, really studied the birth of the universe. And then uh, at university, accidents started to happen. <laughs> um, and I was uh, against my will put on a, a biophysics project for an assignment. And I discovered that um, biology is actually pretty interesting. And so when it, it uh, I got to the point that I wanted to uh, select a PhD, um, I knew that I wanted to study something in biology or the interface between biology and physics. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really know what, and I sort of uh, accidentally landed into neuroscience. Um, and then after that, I had a rather uh, traditional academic career. Um, so I did my PhD in neuroscience. I did a number of postdocs. Um, and I, I, I had a, a first faculty job uh, as a joint position between CERN, the Particle Physics Laboratory in Geneva, and, and the University of Geneva, which was also a rather unusual move for a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually, um, it was time to move on, and, and I got this position at Maastricht University uh, at the Center for Systems Biology, where I am now working on neural engineering and computation. So I had a pretty clear idea that I wanted to be a scientist early on. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what kind, and then uh, lots of accidents happened, and I eventually <laughs> moved from cosmology to neuroscience. All right, so a sequence of accidents set your fate, so to speak. Interesting. Absolutely. Interesting. Sorry, I was just very, very curious about that. So that's why I've asked this question where I've never asked this before in Head's talk. Okay, um, as mentioned in the introduction, you are the professor, the full professor at Master University. I'm assuming there's a lot of research and development uh, happening there. What exciting things or projects are you currently doing and working on at the university that you'd like to share with my listeners? Sure. So there, there are uh, two technology projects that we are focusing on at the moment. Uh, one is to develop a new type of brain-computer interface to modulate mm -hmm. neural activity. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying a new type because this is usually done with electrodes for at least the past decades. This has been the, the central technology to interface mm -hmm. with the brain. Um, but in, in that uh, occurrence, we are trying to develop 
um, a, a new way uh, that we think is more physiological or more natural to to talk to neurons and to interface with neurons. Um, so this is one project uh, I'm working on. Mm -hmm. um, there's a second technology project that we are working on uh, called Gamma MRI, where we uh, want to develop a new type of brain imaging modality. Mm -hmm. So you might be familiar with magnetic resonance imaging or positron emission yeah. tomography if you if you've had ever had a scan at a hospital. Um, and so we are working on a, a novel type of imaging. Uh, that sort of mixes the physical principles of magnetic resonance imaging and positron emission tomography. So it's not a combination of these modalities, but really a new mm -hmm. modality. Mm -hmm. And right. so projects that I inherited from my time at CERN, uh, so to speak, um, and they are relatively low uh, technological readiness level. So we are talking about uh, brand new technologies that might reach uh, TRL3 if you are familiar or if your listeners are familiar with this uh, technology scale by the end of the projects. Um, and then separately from that, uh, I, I'm really interested uh, by um, uh, studying interactions between neurons and non-neuronal cells in the brain. And I think this is something that people are often not aware of, but most of the cells in 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 your skull or your in mine are actually not neurons. Um, and we, we know very little about what these cells do. It's about 80% of the total cells in your brain are not neurons. And we know, we know very little about what these cells do. And so I'm really interested in developing computational methods and simulations and uh, to look at how these cells inter interact with each other, but also interact with neurons. That that sounds really interesting. Probably we'll get you on the, the um Headstalk podcast to talk further about that once you've developed and um, discover new things. The 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 Gamma MRI project that you mentioned, um, it's received funding, didn't it, from the European Union Horizon twenty twenty yes. research and innovation program. I assume you're quite happy with that. Oh yes, absolutely. So we we received uh, a couple of millions to develop that technology. So the the two technology projects that I mentioned, mm -hmm. um. Both are, this is not uh, my work alone, obviously. These, yeah. are, uh, you, these are usually projects that involved uh, six to seven partners, um, including industries, uh, not only academic centers. Um, and in both cases, we got uh, a bit more than 3 million euros to develop these new technologies from the European Commission. Mm -hmm. And the the last one, the, the interaction with the nerves and cells, um, is that an official project going on or is this a sort of a side study, uh, uh, an interest of yours? No, no, this is this is an, uh, it is a similar project to the Gamma MRI project. So it's a, a project that is called INFET and that has received um, also uh, several millions of euros from the European Commission uh, mm -hmm. via the same vehicle. So there's a, a, a program at the European Commission called Pathfinder Open, which is dedicated to founding uh, new and emerging technologies. Mm -hmm. And both projects receive funding from, from that source. Um, you were at the recent... Uh, International Science and Technology Conference. What happened there and what was your speech about? Yes, so um, I was asked to uh, to participate in this uh, scientific and technological developments, uh, benefits and risks for the Biological Weapons Convention conference, um, which uh, is a, a scientific conference with uh, diplomats and field experts um, um, that is organized in preparation for the ninth review conference of the Biological Weapons Convention. Mm -hmm. And so, at the biology, so the Biological Weapons Convention is, uh, um, I don't know how to say this, uh, uh, I guess, uh, 
uh, unit of the United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs or something like that. So they, they, um, there is an interest for, for regulating neurotechnologies. So obviously the uh, BWC started on more traditional uh, bioweapons risks. Uh, but there, there is now, um, I think, a general movement, not only at the Biological Weapons Convention, but also at the WHO or the Geneva Science and Diplomacy Anticipator. Uh, people are interested in trying to assess the risks that are related to neurotechnologies. Mm -hmm. um, there's also an initiative uh, called the Neuro Rights Foundation that is coming from the, from the neuroscience community, really. Um, and, and they have this motto, new human rights for the age of neurotechnology. Mm -hmm. So there's this desire to um, investigate the risks related to neurotechnologies, but also mm -hmm. maybe regulate these risks. And of course, there's a, there's a danger of a potentially weaponization um, of these yeah. technologies. Um, but also, I think in the specific case of neurotechnologies, there's this idea of uh, whether you have a right uh, to privacy of your of your own thoughts, and and if in the future it becomes possible to really uh, read your your private thoughts from uh, using a brain implant that you would mm -hmm. wear, for instance. And I assume at some point um, this will be a, a regulation minefield once certain things have been developed to a, a certain level, be it on a European standard, on a local country standard, or whatever. Yes, I would assume so, and I think um, I think there is a um, a bit of naivety uh, with respect to what can really be achieved uh, today, at least um, with neurotechnologies. Um, so I think it's important that we start thinking about these uh, regulations for this mm. domain. When you say um, naivety, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. When you say naivety, are you talking about the an overinflation of the capabilities or a naivety of the danger or what? No, I think uh, overinflation of the capabilities. Oh. So there's, there's a, so th this is uh, um, what I was saying uh, in, in my presentation at this conference. So there's a lot we can do um, uh, with respect to interfacing with the brain, uh, mm -hmm. but there's very little we understand, I think. And so, and so you, you read um, um, sometimes quite extraordinary claims in the press about mm -hmm. what can be achieved or what will be uh, achievable in a few years. And I think it's... Um, um, a, a bit naive in the sense that uh, we still don't have the beginning of an understanding of how, for instance, information is processed into the brain, right? Mm -hmm. And, and um, in that regard, um, we are far away from science fiction scenarios uh, where, where you can really imprint memories or yeah. modulate memories into the brain of humans or read thoughts with accuracy. But you, you you do know the the press have to overinflate the stories in order to sell papers. That that's a, a business on their part. So you have to forgive them a little bit for that. Yeah, yeah, obviously. But then but then if regulations come, they should be based in in science and yes. not press releases. Yes. That is that is very true. That is very true. Okay, uh, I'm assuming you speak at a number of events like this one. So please. Tell me the, the topics you were often called called out to talk about, maybe in recent years. Well, what is the themes that people want to hear you talk about? Um, actually, that was that was the first time really for me to speak at a, at a, an event on neural technologies with involving diplomats. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, there, there is really now this uh, massive interest for neural technologies, which I think has 
has been pretty visible in the last five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has it has reached the public, um, the public consciousness, I guess. Yes. Um, and so, um, yeah, the, 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 there is this this uh, interest for the technology itself, really, mm-hmm. um, and fascination, I guess, for the technology itself and for um, understanding the workings of the brain. Um, but also, obviously, as as uh, in that conference we just discussed, uh, there is now this uh, increasing interest for um, the kind of risks and that these technologies involve. You, you talked about public consciousness, and uh, I pretty much want you in this next question to to educate us on a, a few of the terminologies um, that is in this space. If I say these terminologies, what comes to mind? And and how would you explain it to the layman? I mean, you've talked about one of your projects that you're working on. I think it was BCI, where you're working on not using electrodes, but other means in yes, computer exactly. interface. Do you want to elaborate on that terminology? For a layman, mm-hmm. an ordinary guy, what, what, what does that mean, brain-computer So BCI is an acronym that's for, for brain-computer interface. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, um, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily cover a very specific uh, reality. So it would be any device, probably implanted inside your skull, but maybe also outside of your skull, that would allow recording from the brain and or stimulating the brain. Um, and really, the the details of how that technology would work is irrelevant, right? So the, this BCI is a, is a very it's an umbrella terminology for any kind of device that allows interfacing the brain with a computer or with electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, it, and like it's not necessary. Sorry. Sorry? Is it like a catch-all phrase that people use? Um, no, I think I, I wouldn't say that. I think it's the established terminology in the field for um, for all that area of development. But, mm-hmm. but um, uh, you have to understand that um, it, is, it does not relate to a very specific technology. It could be uh, any kind of, of technology that allows interfacing with, with neurons or with other brain cells. And, and so it could, you know, you, you have many different uh, technologies or approaches that fall under, under this, this uh, terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also not uh, necessarily as new as people would think. So there are there are actually uh, things that you you could uh, characterize as BCIs or brain implants that have been uh, approved by FDA since the mid '90s, for instance, in the in the case of deep brain stimulation. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. The next one, uh, neuromodulation. What's that? So neuromodulation is a, so it it has a historical meaning in neuroscience, um, and and really it's the physiological process by which a neuron um, uses or releases a certain chemical to regulate the activity of a population of neurons. And, and it's called uh, neuromodulation because of the it, it tends to affect a, a group of neurons rather than a specific other neuron that your initial neuron would talk to. And it's to distinguish this from, let's say, neurotransmitters, which are different molecules mm-hmm. that... Um, have a much more specific effect on a specific neuron, um, and and it's that's the that's the historical uh, meaning of that term. So it basically modulates. It's a, the release of a chemical that modulates the activity of a population of neurons. And there is uh, probably a number of these molecules you've heard the name of already that are characterized as neuromodulators. 
mm -hmm. uh, like dopamine, serotonin, histamine, norepinephrine, and mm -hmm. there are others. Mm -hmm. So all these molecules are called uh, uh, neuromodulators. Mm -hmm. Now, I think in the context of BCIs, it is uh, taking an, an additional meaning, which is the modulation of the activity of a population of neurons uh, by, by the effect of a brain-computer interface. Um, the details of that would remain to be specified, but it, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, its meaning has been augmented in a way to also include the effects of, of devices that can affect populations of neurons. Thank you for that. Thank you. For that. that was quite clear. Oh, right. The next one, I think there's just a couple more after this. Um, bioelectronic medicine. So bioelectronic medicine, I, I must say I had to look it up. Um, scientists, say like that. To, <laughs> <laughs> scientists like to invent new fields of research. Um, and I, I think it doesn't uh, necessarily cover much more than what is included in the term, right? So it's a uh, an area of research that is at the interface between um, healthcare in the sense of, or medicine in the sense of healthcare, biology, and electronic, um, and and it, it it so it is not necessarily a new concept uh, or ID or very specific field of research, but it does suggest uh, um, a certain level of interdisciplinarity. Uh, which maybe was not uh, traditionally part of, uh, let's say, neuroscience historically, right? Because if you think about developing um, brain-computer interfaces, for instance, uh, you are talking about um, uh, different types of engineering, mechanical, electrical engineering, uh, data science and AI maybe, uh, but you are also thinking about biochemistry, biophysics, mm -hmm. immunology, and so on. So it's, I guess it's the this area of research that sits at that really complex interface between all of these traditional uh, fields of research mm -hmm. that is now necessary in the context of developing um, uh, devices that can be implanted into the brain. All right, okay. That's maybe it's a bit of a catch-all statement here. Okay, the final one, uh, DBS, deep brain uh, stimulation. What's the latest on this and, and what are the things that can be done here? So deep brain stimulation, um, it, it refers, I think, relatively specifically to um, a, um, a technology that is used in, in the treatment initial that was developed uh, initially for the treatment of the of Parkinson's disease. Um, and basically, it's, it's implanting electrodes into the brain of a patient mm -hmm. um, to stimulate the activity of a specific population of neurons. Uh, that is involved in the in the park, in Parkinson's disease pathology, and it's called the deep brain stimulation because that population of neurons uh, sits in an area in your brain that is not necessarily very easy to reach, that is below mm -hmm. the cortex, and so you need to really go uh, reach that that remote area uh, to to be able to stimulate these neurons, and it's a technology that has been uh, pioneered in the in the late 80s uh, by Alim Louis Benabit, and and it was. Um, uh, approved by the FDA. First treatments were approved by the FDA in 1996. And I think it's a, so it's a rather, um, I think by today's standard, ancient technology uh, that really can alleviate some of the symptoms um, in, in Parkinson's patients. So it doesn't uh, cure them, obviously, mm -hmm. but it allows them to have a better quality of life for a number of years uh, as, the, as the disease continues to progress. Um, 
But I think it's it's interesting because it illustrates how uh, there's a certain hype about neural technologies uh, that has that has uh, come in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but this illustrates that this a lot of these technologies have been there for a really long time already, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe flew under the radar of uh, investors or venture capitalists, right? Because this this was developed really in the late '80s, and mm -hmm. and there's a, a long history of using it in a clinical setting already. I'm glad you just talked about the, the venture capitalists. I was going to sort of ask a sort of a further question around Parkinson's. And where are we today with that and, and neuroscience? How has that developed since um, the, um, was it the DBS? I strongly suspect we've not moved much further away than we were maybe 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, because the deep brain stimulation is really like a kind of a uh, you know, it, it it improves the quality of life of patients for a couple of years, but they mm -hmm. anyway don't have a very long lifespan once the symptoms are present. So it's a matter of improving their last years of life. Mm -hmm. And usually they develop the disease when they are relatively old. Mm -hmm. And so from a, from a medical perspective, um, they, there is no necessarily a desire or a need to cure them because it's basically impossible. Mm -hmm. And they would anyway die within more or less the, the that normal lifespan. Yeah. So yeah. you just you improve their quality of life um, to an extent. Uh, so it's, while so it's like palliative care. Is that what you're saying? Um, well, I guess you could see it like this. I don't know. Um, no, because it really it really makes a difference. So I think that um, so my grandfather died of Parkinson's disease. Oh. It's a pretty it's a pretty unpleasant disease mm. to die of, um, and and I think that. People get the, 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 so they are the tremors that are very visible, but they also have difficulties initiating movements. So they, they become very dependent, I think, on their environment. Mm -hmm. And, and with deep brain stimulation, you basically drive a population of neurons very strongly so that they release dopamine to, um, uh, flood the brain with dopamine. Mm -hmm. And that allows them to behave a bit more normally. Uh, so I wouldn't say palliative. I guess it, it allows them to be a bit more independent than they would be without it mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't obviously solve the problem which is that you have a population of neurons that is dying mm -hmm. and and nobody really knows okay why okay yes the direct killing mechanism is known mm -hmm. but why the, the disease develops and propagates mm -hmm. this is unclear okay and let's look at startups in the, in the neurotech space um buoyant how buoyant is is the investor market um, for newer tech, brain tech startups? And what are you seeing, um, Renault? So I, I must say that the, the the act of raising funding is a bit outside of my area of expertise. But I think that uh, there, there's a really strong hype um, uh, for neurotechnologies. And, and you can see that uh, there's a proliferation of startups and, mm -hmm. and uh, young companies that are that are raising capital for uh, developing neural technologies, mm -hmm. and so I would think that the the investor market is quite buoyant, and 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 it's probably going to grow. Mm -hmm. And I would think that there are good reasons for that because um, in the last five or ten years, there were really significant technological advances in neuroscience that sort of uh, open up or unlock. Uh, a lot of possibilities for uh, mm -hmm. interfacing and, and manipulating the brain. And so on the back of these technological advances, um, I think that there is there is a great hope uh, and, and great interest for, for uh, developing commercial products. Mm -hmm. um, now, I would say that um, um, investors should be really careful and really um, 
uh, uh, the, it's going back to this idea of the naive, naivety. They, yeah. they should be really careful about which companies they invest in, because I think that there are there are certain companies that have rather extraordinary claims that are yeah. just not supported by the science. And 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 you know the brain is an incredibly complex organ. Um, and that complexity cannot be wished away. Um, and you cannot just throw a, a, a technological solutions and hope that this is this is going to work. And the biology is very messy and very noisy. Mm-hmm. And, and that reality cannot be wished away. And so I think that investors should be really careful about um, the credentials of the people they mm-hmm. invest in and, mm-hmm. and the, the, the credibility or the, the scientific soundness of the claims that they make. Mm-hmm. And, and and sticking to what you talked about, I think it was the hype. You see, there's a strong hype, especially in the last sort of five years. Um, would you say that there are just one too many inventions, especially in the the health and performance arm of, of the neuroscience? In doing my research here, I see a lot of products coming out in the neurotech space, and I'm wondering where does an investor weed out what is good, where what is what is a product that's going somewhere, and what is just a fad. So in order to do that, I would think that you you need to to uh, talk to people who have um, a direct experience and understanding of uh, the complexity of the brain and and uh, and uh, <laughs> not to and and especially um, I think that the the, the na- part of the naivety comes from a, a naive understanding of how the brain is organized, mm-hmm. uh, which people see as maybe a big neural network. And, and as I said uh, earlier in, in this chat, um, uh, most of the cells in, our, in your brain are not neurons. And it, it turns out that for historical reasons, we know very little about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that you need to talk to people with an actual understanding of the complexity of the brain at the cellular level mm-hmm. and an understanding of the practicalities of some of the methods that certain companies or, or inventors or innovators mm-hmm. want to use um, because it's unless you've done it yourself you don't always realize uh, where the caveats where the problems stand and so I think you want to you want to collect this kind of uh, field uh, opinions from field experts we have an understanding of the complexities of the pr- and practicalities of doing this kind of research or development mm-hmm. really at the cellular level. And, and I'm not quite sure investors do that, um, at least when I see certain companies uh, that receive uh, extensive funding. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I sometimes question myself, how did they manage to get mm-hmm. funds for this kind of products? Because it seems pretty unrealistic. What they, what they are proposing to do seems pretty unrealistic. And it suggests that the investors didn't really look into it very carefully or didn't talk to field experts before investing. Or perhaps, this is just me saying, or perhaps they've got wind that Big Pharma might impose a buyout on such startups and therefore they would most definitely get their money back or something like that. I don't know. Possibly. Okay, let's move on. Um, In the series... Guess um, the guess answer one to a maximum of four questions from listeners. Um, we've called this the, the foresight quiz, so it's a, a bit of a small quiz here for you. There will be a scenario or just a straightforward questions for you to answer as follows. Um, answer A, as in in the near future, it all makes sense in a minute. B, in the far future. Uh, C, it's already here. 
D, I don't know, and E, impossible or never. So um, let me start with the first question. I've got a list of questions from the listeners. Okay, the first question, right, I won't tell you his name. Um, can we re, sorry, can we reprogram the brain to use the left hand going forward? Assuming you are right-handed to start with by the looks of um, I don't think we can, um, but maybe in the not so distant future, this could be possible. All right, so in the far future. Yeah. So you're not saying impossible? No. All right, I thought that was an impossible. Okay, the next one, um, the second one. Okay, the second one, I'll give you a second one, the final one. Right, will we be able to communicate with one another with the aid of tech via a form of telepathy? Well, that sounds like a Star Trek question to me. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, I, I wish I wish we could we could. Um, I think I I'm so I think it's possible to uh, read out from people's thoughts to some extent this is probably already existing to some level i'm less sure about uh how you would you would uh imprint this uh, information or memories uh into the receiver and mm. there i think uh, this is probably where the difficulty resides and there i think i don't really know when or if it's going to be possible all right, that's probably, is that the direct data interface? Probably not. Okay, right. Um, let's end this episode of Heads Talk with this question. Um, I, I briefly mentioned it. I forgot this question was coming up. Um, what do you think is the fate of the pharmaceutical industry with the advent of some of these neurobiotechnology solutions to combat diseases, behaviors, etc.? So, um. I think that that it's an opportunity for the pharmaceutical industry, especially if they if you're running a pharmaceutical company that already has a medical device division, or mm -hmm. if you want to create one. Uh, I would definitely keep an eye open on on neurotechnologies. Now, if you if you think about the pharmaceutical industry as more of a provider of drugs or gene therapies or or this kind of therapies. Um, I think that it will not have a very significant effect on their business, at least not in the short term, mm -hmm. because most of the diseases in the brain um, uh, are, are or become systemic at some point, right? So they they, mm -hmm. they don't affect, uh, they rarely affect a, a small, very small, narrow region of the brain physically, um, and and it's hard to think of a device for instance, that could be implanted that would be able to reach all the brain regions that are affected. So if you think about uh, late stages of Alzheimer's disease or mental disorders, uh, mm -hmm. depression or, or mental health issues, uh, I think the the, the uh, appeal will remain the most effective way to, to uh, affect the physiology of the brain on a large scale. And mm -hmm. so in that regard, um, I guess it's it, it neurotechnologies are, are can come as a complement, but I don't see them displacing necessarily uh, the pharmaceutical industry in 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 at least not for most of the disease of the brain. I, I thought you would have said 
the opposite may be sort of in the far future, then perhaps there's an element of newer technology that will take over what the current pharmaceutical industry and solutions are doing. But no, you're not saying that. Um, Renaud Jolivet, fascinating conversation today, uh, a great contribution to the series. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.